the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, God introduces us to Saul, a tall, handsome, humble, ideal specimen for a king. But time will tell what's in his heart. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. The title of the message is, A Humble Start. First Samuel chapter 9. We saw last week that Israel is done with their cycles of instability. And what they see as the problem is they need a king. They don't have a king. That's why we have such instability in our nation. And so they demand that Samuel give them a king. And God will give them one. But the king will be his choice, and it will be in his timing. So God sends the tribal leaders home. (laughs) But in this chapter, we're going to meet in God's choice for king. And we'll see in this chapter a couple things. One, that God knew that they would reject Samuel's warning about a king, you know, the reality check about a king. And and God already had a plan in place. And then number two, that things will start off well for the man that God chooses because he has a humble heart. This will be kind of a multiple study. We'll look at the humble heart that Saul started with. So chapter nine, and we'll begin in verse one. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, who was the son of Zeror, the son of Bechroth, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any other people. And the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take now one of the servants with you and arise and go seek the donkeys. So here we meet Saul and his family. And we start off with his father. It says, now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Now, Benjamin, remember, that's the tribe that was almost wiped out in the book of Judges. Remember the civil war that was fought where the 11 other tribes fought against Benjamin, got whooped twice, and then they beat him the third time and almost wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. Kish is from that tribe. He was the son of Abiel, the son of Zoror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia. These names are not known to us. They will be mentioned here and then dropped off. It's important, though, just to understand he's a Benjamite. 
It also mentions here that he was a mighty man of power. It's the same word that was used to describe Boaz. It means that he was an elite soldier. He was a war hero and a well-respected man in his tribe. It almost always also means someone who was wealthy as well. So this is Saul's family. His father is a well-respected man, a war hero, and very likely comes from a pretty well-to-do family. Verse 2, we meet Saul. And he, Kish, had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. A choice man, young man, means he stood out. He was stood out amongst the other young men. When you think of young man, I, I don't usually think of myself. I think of people much younger than me. However, Saul was likely in his late 30s, early 40s at this time. And the reason it calls him a young man is because it's very young for leadership. The society back then was one where the oldest male was kind of in charge. And so for a man in his late 30s, or early 40s to be king was considered a young guy. It mentions he was also a goodly, which basically means he was a handsome dude. He was a beautiful man is what it means. And it explains what that meant, that from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. There was not in Israel a goodly person to him and explains why. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Saul literally stood head and shoulders above everyone else. No one in Israel, there was no one in Israel could match his physical appearance. Now, when you describe Saul this way, this is exactly what Israel's looking for in a king. Someone with a grand appearance to lead them into prosperity and stability. Someone with the DNA to pass on those qualities to their descendants so the nation would be stable for centuries to come. I mean, he fits the bill for what they're looking for. Now, these attributes don't necessarily define the type of person that the Lord wants, of course, because the Lord's looking for things that are more inward, not necessarily these outward attributes. But the Lord is going to give Israel what they want, because while Saul will have a wonderful and, and humble beginning to his reign, and that made him a decent candidate for a leader, God had something he wanted to teach the nation. And we know, of course, Saul didn't stay humble as he did in the beginning, but eventually he let all these things go to his head. So knowing all this, then why did God choose Saul to be Israel's first king? Well, I mentioned it was to teach Israel a couple important lessons. Number one, I think the Lord was trying to teach Israel that what society values doesn't equate necessarily to what God values. I'm not saying it doesn't always, but just the things that society values does not necessarily equate to what God values. So the lesson is that we must be very careful when we evaluate things. For example, one of the things, I don't know if I still hear it anymore, but I used to frequently hear it when it was very popular for when athletes got saved or celebrities, you know, actors or actresses got saved and, you know, they would all of a sudden be thrust into the limelight. They had become speakers or they were always invited places to give their testimony and stuff, which is fine. But the thing I would hear people say is frequently with some of these individuals in society before they got saved, they would say, man, if that person ever got saved, they could really be used by God. And I think that that is an incorrect assessment. Because it's the idea that the qualities that tend to be admired and looked up to in our culture are qualities necessarily that God goes, wow, I can really use that person. I don't think that's always true. And I think very frequently we can find that those two things will be at odds. Oftentimes what society values is not what God values. So I think that the Lord was trying to teach Israel that what they had valued and what they were looking for is not necessarily what qualifies someone in God's eyes. And then secondly, I think the Lord was also trying to teach them to look at character 
regardless of external appearances. Character, how do I explain this? When I was a very young pastor, when I was a wee lad pastor, you're starting out and, and you don't have much, right? I mean, we started out as a Bible study in our studio apartment. And so we had anywhere from five to 12 people that were coming. And these folks were saying, hey, we, we look at you as our pastor. We want to ha- start having Sunday services. We want to start a church. And that's what was on our hearts anyway to do. Me and Beverly, we felt God called us to plant a church. And so we did that. And so, but to do that, it requires help. It requires things. What, what happens when someone shows up with a kid? What happens when you've got a ministry that you're not meeting at that point in time? You need help. And so, unfortunately, you can very easily get into this mindset where you start looking at people that come in and go, well, where might they fit? And what role might they play? And I started to do that. And so when someone came in that had any inkling of ministry at all, I used to start thinking, all right, start pouring into them, you know, start pouring into them so they can be raised up and they can serve whatever. And I had all those warnings about being careful about raising people up. And so I didn't move anyone into leadership quickly by any means. However, the problem was I was frequently disappointed One, because I had a wrong attitude, those were people that Jesus loved, not tools for my toolbox and for my whatever I was doing. And then number two, because many of the things that I looked at that I thought were admirable were not necessarily qualities that would be useful for the people we were trying to serve. Maybe they were a gifted speaker or they could handle the word well or people liked them or they were charismatic or all the various things you can imagine might be good for a certain leadership position unfortunately, we're oftentimes coupled with unfaithfulness and unreliability and unpredictability and marriage problems and and all these other things that are very bad negatives if you're going to give someone responsibility. And so as a result, I learned really quickly that there were things that oftentimes may not be externally seen, but could be tested over time to be of much more value than any of the things I had previously valued people come to me and they have a heart and they say, hey, you know, I've, I've done this and this and this in the past and, you know, I have a heart to do these things. And one of the first things I tell them, I say, well, get to know people. I said, hey, I want it to make sense when we put you in charge of something. I don't want it to be out of the blue because if it comes out of the blue, the only thing I've got is, well, they're good at this. Truth is, even if you're good at something, there's probably about 800 people out there who are doing it way better than you. Truth I'm not going to keep anybody here because I'm a good teacher, but if I'm someone who invests in lives that can be trusted, that can be relied upon, that can be counted upon, those are things that, that people really need. Not that they don't need good teaching, but there's lots of good teachers out there. There's lots of people with the gift of teaching out there. But looking for things that are more important are not necessarily talents, but they are character, heart. One of the things I tell people, I say, well, I'd like to get to know you better. I'd like to know what your family's like. I'd like to know what you do on a daily basis. I'd like to know what your life looks like. I'd like to find out what makes you tick. You know, I'd like to make sure that you're not a closet whatever and that there are things that are important to you that shouldn't be that important to you. So I think the Lord is trying to teach them to look at character regardless of external appearances. Now, that's enough on that spiel. Saul's story begins with a family crisis, a serious one. The donkeys are lost. I know it doesn't sound like an exciting start to the king of Israel's beginnings, but God frequently, at least I found, frequently uses mundane things to set up divine appointments. 
And so verse 3, the donkeys of Kish's, Saul's father, were lost. It means they had wandered off. And so Kish said to Saul, his son, take now one of the servants with you and arise and go seek the donkeys. So probably a little bit harsh. And this is why I think we get the idea that Saul's like a, a younger guy. The fourth phrase there, take now, it means please take, please do this for me, son. Middle Eastern families, uh, even to this day, they defer to the oldest male in the family. So Saul, at this point in time, has a grown child. Jonathan's a grown man at this point. And yet, his father's wishes still carried the most weight in the family. And so if, if Kish asks his son to go find the donkeys, it was the norm for his son to go find the donkeys. So Saul does. Verse 4, so he passed through Mount Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. These are locations that are north of Saul's home in the tribe of Benjamin. So then they passed through the land of Shalim. These are locations that are to the west of Saul's home. And there they were not either. And so he passed through the land of the Benjamites. He looks all throughout the land of his tribe and he could not find them. So all of these areas are about 12 miles around where Saul lives. He's just kind of making a circuit around. And in verse five, when he finally gets to a place called Zuf, he says, I'm done looking. When they were come to the land of Zuth, verse five, Saul said to his servant that was with him, come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the donkeys and he start taking thought for us. So Saul and his servant, they go as far as about 12 miles in a radius around their home, which is quite the journey, quite a few days worth of journeys. And, and he decides to stop looking. He says, we need to go home. Dad's going to be more worried about me and you than he will be about the donkeys. Um, which again, leads us to probably believe that Kish was a, a semi-wealthy man of some sorts. But the servant suggests a better solution, verse 6. And so he said to him, to Saul, he, the servant, behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says comes surely to pass. So now let us go there, peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. Behold now means please consider this. Uh, maybe he's the servant who lost track of the donkeys. And so he, uh, he has personal investment in making sure they find him. I don't know. But he said, you know, listen, let's, can we try one other thing? There is in this city, wherever Zuf is, they're not sure exactly where it is, but wherever there is, there's a city there nearby, a man of God. And he says, he's an honorable man, because back then when you said there's a man of God over there, people would roll their eyes. Men of God were not looked at in high esteem due to the Levites' corruption, the judges' corruption, Samuel's own son's corruption during this time. So the servant has to clarify, no, 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 he's, he's a man of God who's also an honorable man, which means held in high esteem. That Samuel isn't actually named here, that he doesn't say, oh, it's Samuel. Um, it shows that Saul's family was not very active in the nation's politics. His family was not an influential or important family in that sense because Samuel was well-known everywhere and by everyone. And so if they were familiar with that, he would have just said it's Samuel. Instead, he describes what Samuel's reputation is. He says, all that he says comes surely to pass. This guy's the real deal. He's not a phony. God actually speaks to him. Now, peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. If we go to him and he can ask the Lord, the Lord can tell us, and then we can go find the donkeys. Now, this was how Samuel got his reputation when he was a young, a young man, way back in 1 Samuel 3.19, remember? He was the only one that God was speaking to. I mean, maybe a few other people, but the word of God, it says, was there's like a famine of it back then. And so, but the Lord was speaking to Samuel. And so he got this reputation for Samuel 3.19 says that, hey, everything he says comes to pass. So we know the Lord speaks to him. So this servant says, let's just try that. Now, I think this is interesting because it gives us a little bit of insight into who Saul is as an individual. 
right? We're going to see this all throughout his life. But Saul's thought was, I've just traveled around 12 miles and I didn't find the donkeys. Let's go home. And the servant's going, well, what about this idea? See, Saul is kind of a hammer kind of guy. For example, if he sees a nail, he hits it, right? He's a hammer kind of guy. Now, that's wonderful if your problem is a nail. But there's a little creativity in that kind of problem solving. I mean, if you're just a hammer and, and you're looking to hit things, not every problem needs to be hit by a hammer. And this will become a problem in his leadership style once Saul is king. He has little imagination and little faith to see God moving outside of how he perceives things are. And so even now, he doesn't see how this plan will work. Look at his response in verse 7. Then said Saul to his servant, but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? In other words, we don't have any extra supplies. We've already used up all the supplies we have. We only have enough to get home. And so what kind of a present, in other words, what kind of a token of honor, what kind of a customary gift can we give to the man so he can tell us what to do? What do we have? So again, for him, he only kind of sees one way. And it's always easier to make excuses and step out in faith. Always. My nature is to not step out in faith. My nature is to find the excuses. And then if you keep giving me ideas to pound your dumb ideas into submission, so you leave me alone. I'm not creative in those types of ideas. I remember I've been in management outside of the church my whole work career. And God would frequently bring people who were the idea people. And I was that person who'd be like, okay, okay, this is the only way we can do it. And they'd be like, what about this? What about this? And I'd just be like, I'm not like that. So I understand Saul's mentality. But being a Christian, it's really hard if you're just going to have tunnel vision like that because there's an arrogance to only seeing things through your lens. God is big and all-powerful, and I am limited. I'm small, not all-powerful. So it's important that we recognize that the Lord is calling us at times to step out in faith, not to make excuses for why we shouldn't. Because the truth is, if you look hard enough at any situation, you'll find an excuse why not to step out in faith. You always will. Now, that doesn't mean we should be unwise, but a stop at a nearby town wasn't going to hurt them, even if it didn't yield the desired results. But once again, the servant has more imagination than Saul. Look at verse 8. And the servant answered Saul and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver. That's what I will give to the man of God to tell us our way. Behold means, look what I found. I have, which means I found. Look at what I found. He went looking in their supplies again. He knew that Saul was correct, but he thought, well, I'll go check again. Saul didn't even check. And he said, look what I found. I found a fourth part of a shekel. Now, a shekel was a weight used for business transactions. So the reason you, you carried shekels like this with you is so that if you were doing business deals and someone weighed out their shekel, you could put yours on there and make sure they didn't have a false weight. Um, that was a common thing back then where they'd be like, oh, that'll cost two shekels worth of your grain for my wool. And so, you know, you'd put two shekels worth of weight of grain on the scale and, you know, they'd have ones that weighed like half a shekel, you know, or something like that. And so, or whatever, more than that. It's something where you would end up on the raw end of the deal. So oftentimes you would carry your own weight with you to make sure the guy was being honest with you. Coin currency wasn't used in history until about 300 years after 1 Samuel chapter 9. However, silver still had value. And so it might not have been much, but it was something they could give to the man of God. And so he says, I'll give that to him to tell us our way. Now, 
why is there so much holdup over giving the man of God a gift? Why couldn't they just go and ask Samuel? Why couldn't he just do that for them? Tradition. That's why. It's just how it always was. Verse 9. For before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spoke, come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. Now, the word seer just means a person who speaks for God. So it means the same thing as prophet. But the name changed at the time the writer of 1 Samuel wrote this because Samuel established a school of prophets. They were the ones who spoke for God. So that's why he explains that, for example, down in verse 10, then said Saul to his servant, well said, let us go. So they went up to the city where their man was. And then they went up to the hill of the city. They found young maidens going out to draw water. And Saul said to them, is the seer here? See, the writer knows his readers are going to go, what's a seer? Because that was not a word they were familiar with. So he explains how it was. Back then they were called seers. And if you wanted to go to the seer, you had to bring a gift. So before we move on to the verses that I eventually read to there, we do need to stop to address this idea of pay to play. You know, the idea that you got to pay the prophet to hear the word of the Lord. It strikes me as all too familiar to visiting a, a medium or a fortune teller, doesn't it? Sadly, Israel equated those types of things with God speaking through prophets. Uh, this should not be. Uh, it should not be then. It uh, should not have been then, and it should not be today. In Matthew 10, verse 8, Jesus, when he was sending out the disciples, he said this. He said, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. I would imagine that those are quite desirable effects, things to have. Then he says, freely you have received, freely give. I can tell you, if I had the ability to raise the dead whenever I wanted to, I could make a whole lot of money. A whole lot of money. But Jesus taught the exact opposite of that. Freely you have received, freely give. God is the one who gives wisdom and does the miraculous. It doesn't reside in his servants. It's not something that can just be called on anytime we wish. We don't have this power in and of ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I believe it's verse 7, it might be verse 9, but it says that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal as the Spirit sees fit. I may have the gift of being a pastor, I may have the gift of teaching, but there's no one who just has the gift of healing or has the gift of miracles that they can just call it at will whenever they want. The Holy Spirit chooses who he wants to use that gift through when he wants to do it. That's what the scriptures teach. So don't ever listen to someone who tells you they're a healer or they're a this or they're a that because even if God may have used them often in that way, it's not something they can just call at will whenever they want. These things don't reside in us. Both wisdom and the miraculous, the supernatural wisdom that comes from God, the supernatural direction that maybe someone speaks into your life, the supernatural miracles that God does, that's not something that resides in his servants. And therefore... No minister should charge for counseling or prayer. I am almost always asked when someone calls about counseling of some sort, and they say, how much do you charge? I'm heartbroken when someone asks that, that they would even think they would, that there'd be an obstacle somehow to them getting the word of God. No minister should charge for counseling or prayer. While it's become the norm in churches these days, it should not be. When the early church started, that was one of the ways they taught you to recognize a false teacher. 
You can read it. It's called the Didache or the Didache. People pronounce it differently. But it was a list of instructions to the early church. And it had a list of things, how to recognize if a guy comes to your church, if he's a false prophet, false teacher. First thing was, if he asks you to cook him dinner. If he asks you to give him dinner. But the second thing was, is if he asks for money. If he asks for money, don't listen to him. Because we're servants. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Now, I realize that while Matthew 10.8 says that, that Matthew 10.10 also says that the laborer is worthy of his hire. I recognize that. So it does say that those who are ministered to should be generous to care for the minister's needs. It says that. But that's different than charging, right? That's different. So it's not wrong for a minister to take a salary or to receive a special gift from those he's blessed. There's a balance there. But he should never charge. You see, the minister faithfully serves God's people whether he has hopes of being supported financially or not because that's what love does. It obeys God and it serves others whether something might be coming back or not. The people also should support the minister so he can do the work God's called him to do. But it should be out of their generosity, not because there's a charge for it. Ministry is not pay to play. It's a generous service, both from the minister and to those who are being served. And so if you're looking at ministry, at counseling, or at any kind of other outreach type of a way to a career, if you're looking at those as a good paying career, then please pursue a different profession because that is the wrong mindset. No one should ever be denied spiritual help because they don't have the funds. No one. Let's have humble hearts. Amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.